Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Reset Australia is advocating for a children's privacy code that limits the amount of data companies collect on children and ensures it's only used in their best interest. Rhys Farthing is Children's Data Policy Director at Reset Australia and they join us to tell us more. Welcome, Rhys. Hello, lovely to be here. Lovely to have you. So Reset Australia is a relatively new advocate in the Australian space. Can you tell us a bit about Reset, please? Yeah, sure. Reset is a independent, philanthropically funded, not-for-profit organisation that's working around, I guess, what you'd call issues around digital threats to democracy. So looking at how we can really take the capacities of the digital world and use them to enhance and improve democracy. And part of that is looking at data and data protections and how we can improve them, and particularly for children and young people. That's one of our current focuses for the year. So, Reese, when you're talking about digital threats to democracy and particularly around children, what sort of specifics are top of mind when you think about that kind of thing? We're really thinking about children's data as a way of, I guess, trying to realise children's rights in the digital space and in the digital world, because at the moment we know there's just so much data being collected about children and young people from apps collecting data about their growth in utero to G suite in the classroom. Or, you know, there was one estimate alone that suggested just even just for things as simple as ad tech, there's over 72 million data points collected about children before they're 13 years old. And we don't always necessarily know what data is collected, who has it, who's collecting it, or how they're using it. And this is made a little bit troubling because the regulations that govern data collection and protection in Australia are out of date. It's largely governed by the 1988 Privacy Act, which, as you can imagine, was written long before the digital world came to be as we knew it and long before we could even imagine what big data was, let alone how we could safeguard it and protect it and make sure that actually it wasn't used to harm children. So we're really thinking about how do we improve these data regulations for children and young people. And the UK and Ireland have given us some really fantastic examples of ways you can create child-centred legislation that really does that and really makes sure that children's best interests are put at the heart of data use and collection. And fundamentally, we just think Australia's children and young people deserve the same, if not better protections than European young people. So that's why we're calling for a children's data protection code. Reese. That sounds quite uncontroversial from our point of view. It really is. (laughs) But I can imagine that these topics are really new to a lot of people because we didn't grow up having to face these same issues. Do you think that, by and large, parents have enough information? Are they equipped with enough information when they are helping their children interact with these social media companies or email companies or any sort of digital databases to really even create an informed consent environment? That's just such an interesting question. And I'm asked this a lot, actually, how can we sort of support and enable parents to understand what's going on and help them guide young people through the digital world as it currently exists. But I think we can even ask a question that's even more upstream of that because I think, you know, I'm not sure if any of you are parents, but parents are incredibly busy people that are already spinning a lot of plates. And I think we can actually help parents out a little bit 
by putting in place regulations that ask tech developers, tech companies, um, people who actually make these digital services and products to make them safe and make them privacy-preserving from the get-go so that it's not actually down to individual children or young people or indeed their parents to make the right choices or do the right things or select the right products. Mm. It's actually about making sure that all of the products and all of the services that children and young people can and do access are safe and privacy-preserving from the get-go. We throw a lot in the face of big technology companies because I guess they're very visible when they do things wrong. But would your idea about how amendments need to go in this space for privacy for teens and children, would it need to extend to, say, government software in schools? The codes that are in place in the UK and Europe via Ireland actually extend to all digital services that young people use. So actually it would include software that's used for education, so red tech and these sorts of things. There are some exemptions to it in terms of, look, if your software is, is actually about the best interest principles, is this a mental health service that's in an emergency crisis type situation? But actually this is really about creating a context where for children and young people you've got child-centred design principles in place that actually if you're developing, making, implementing, selling, updating, if you're doing anything about a digital service that children and young people might use, actually you've got to put their best interests at heart and it doesn't matter who your client is then if you're a commercial entity or a public sector entity. Actually this is really about setting the rules in place so that that the digital world is a bit fairer for children and young people. And also simpler for people to implement if these rules oh, yeah. are consistent. I'm really fascinated. Like, I think on the show we talk a lot about these sorts of topics, but definitely through that adult lens and kind of our, probably our, our audience lens, what are some of the deeper risks of having this data or having these, you know, the, like the number that you had 72 million data points? What are some of the specific risks of that for children? I think it's a really, really good question. But even before you get to risks, you need to acknowledge that for anyone, but including children and young people, This is personal data that's about them. It's actually their data and it's a violation of their rights, including their right to privacy, that so much of it exists that it's collected and used in ways that they may not expect nor have consented to. So you've got a kind of rights-based issue even before you get to risks. Then if you look at the risks of having all of this data and the risks that it's often used to create, I think children and young people are in a really unique position, I think, to adults. So we see things like their data is being used to train algorithms that extend use and serve them questionable content that might not be appropriate for their age. And you also see things like geolocation data, which is being used to broadcast their location to the public, which might absolutely be fine for me using Snapchat or Facebook to say, here I am, here's where I am. But actually, it starts to become a bit questionable when you're talking about under-18s because there's, there's different safety and security concerns for young people. And so the use of this data is used to create a kind of really highly risky digital world. And then specific to children and young people, we've also seen it gone on, unfortunately, to cause some absolute concrete harms. So, you know, from where young people's future opportunities have been limited by data that exists about them. And, you know, I'm absolutely talking about the thing that we all comes to mind when you say that, like the oof moment about that old post that you might have put up when you were 15, you know, <laughs> limiting your chances of going to university or these sorts of things. Yeah. But what we're also starting to see is other forms of like automated decision making about 
them and their lives because they've been tracked for almost their whole life. There's a lifetime of data that can be used to go into that that could have really serious consequences for the way they've lived. We've also seen really troubling things like young people who are being groomed online because Facebook's People You May Know algorithm has recommended them to adult strangers who live nearby, even though they're not known to them. And we've even seen one sort of really tragic case where a young person took their own life after being served a sort of non-stop stream of self-harm material in the UK. And there's a live coroner's inquest into that at the moment to see if the algorithm is partly to blame for that. So I think with children and young people, just because of the nature of the fact that they're young, they're entitled to special protection and things can go wrong for children and young people in a way that they can't for adults. The risks of all of this really, really multiply and I think they just deserve extra, different, more protections than mm-hmm. adults. But ultimately, I think it would be great if, if all Australians were protected by really strong regulations that govern yes. the, the collection and use of their data. Yes. But I think we can absolutely start with children and young people because it's just a really uncontroversial <laughs> no-nonsense <laughs> argument that children and young people should really only have their data collected and used where it's in their best interest. Rhys, you've you know, done a great yeah. job of bringing up some real examples there, but I did want to hear a little bit from you about a recent experiment the Reset Australia did involving Facebook and advertisers targeting teenage profiles based on a range of questionable interests, smoking, gambling and alcohol, all the way to extreme weight loss and dating status. Could you tell us a bit about what you found there? The reason we did that was exactly to get to your question that you posed earlier around, do we actually know enough around this? What we were trying to do was really highlight some of the concrete risks that exist around the collection and use of children's data as is currently allowed under Australian regulations. So we just did this super simple piece of research that looked at what we're calling questionable or risky use of of children's data to profile them for commercial advertising purposes. And we just, all social media platforms do this, or most of them do. And so we just used Facebook as as a case study to demonstrate this. All we had to do was log into Facebook as an advertiser and use their audience builder tool that's available to anyone who logs in as an advertiser. And this let us see some of the ways that Facebook were profiling young people and making these profiles, making access to these profiles available to us as an unknown advertiser. And it it gives us both a glimpse under the hood to the sorts of data that Facebook are collecting, but also definitely it gave us an insight into what they were prepared to sell access to. And what we found available was some pretty extensive profiling of children and young people that, as you pointed out, was pretty troubling. So it took us about 30 seconds to work out that we were able to profile young people between 13 and 17 who are interested in all sorts of things that you'd imagine Facebook shouldn't be broadcasting young people as interested in alcohol, gambling, weight loss, extreme weight loss. We were also able to go right down to find out, could we advertise to young people who went to our local high school? Or could we advertise to 13 to 17 year old girls who are single, who are interested in online dating? And we found absolutely you were able to do this. You know, Facebook weren't treating young people's data any differently to they were treating adults' data. Yeah, and and I there think, wasn't any sort of different filter. I think we have to be careful to sort of say, look, this experiment was Facebook focused, but we have heard plenty of stories about, say, people being radicalised via 
the suggestions of videos on the side in YouTube or other things like that. So they're certainly not alone in having problems in this space. No, absolutely not. As I mentioned, it was just a case study yeah. and it was trying to point out this is how data is currently allowed to be used under current regulation. We need to rethink our regulation. We need to really step up what we do to protect children and young people's data. Absolutely. Reese. obviously we're talking about young people who have, in most instances, parents or guardians who are trying to look out for their welfare. And for those who are listening who might be concerned about this kind of thing, what can parents or adults who are concerned with the welfare of a child who isn't their own child do about this? We're focused on systemic change. We want to see the rules of play changed so that every child and every young person in Australia is protected, not just those who might have a parent at home who's able to talk them through what the privacy settings might be or lucky enough to have someone who can explain what happens when you post something that it stays online. So we're encouraging anyone who wants to get involved with the campaign for better data regulations for children and young people, reach out to us online. You can contact your MP. That would be absolutely brilliant and just let them know that you've got these concerns. But we're expecting the next phase of the review of the Privacy Act to be launched very, very shortly. And so I'd encourage everyone to just reach out, put in a really simple submission that just says, actually, we need things to be better for young people. Because I think that if you can change the rules and you can change the system, you protect not only your children, your neighbours' children, but you protect the most vulnerable children who don't necessarily have an individual adult advocating for them. Rhys, that is a great call out. So if our listeners are interested, they can find out more at au.reset.tech, T-E-C-H there. And there's plenty of information on all of the Reset Australia campaigns, including a data code for children. We've been speaking of Rhys Farthing, the Children's Data Policy Director at Reset Australia. If any of the things that we've spoken about raise concerns for you tonight... You can speak to Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Kids Helpline on 1800 1800. Reese, thank you so much for making some time to speak to us. It's on a really important issue. Thank you for having me. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. We're joined by futurist and senior lecturer in strategic design, foresight and innovation, Bridget Engler, to discuss the future of digital identities, including how we might navigate privacy, the availability of data, regulation and how data is used by organisations and institutions in years to come. So very good to follow up our previous interview. Thanks for joining us, Bridget. Thank you for having me. You've probably heard our last conversation was very much around privacy as it involved children and teens. But we're not just interested in children's and teens online. We're also interested in adults' experiences of creating digital identities online and then how privacy intersects with that. Oh, that's a big one. One of the things that I'm aware of, just listening to our previous guest, was that the prioritisation of the voices of futures. I actually happened to tweet about that because I could. But we might have been, as in this group of people sitting in this room, we might have been creating digital identities for a number of years, but we're also potentially creating digital identities and compromising privacy for generations to come. Mm. And we haven't necessarily thought that through. Oh, it's so difficult. Paul, I know you're so keen to jump in. I'm really keen because we sort of use that phrase, digital identities, we sort of bandied around. But what's the breadth that we're talking about? We've got the public Facebook and Twitter stuff, but I assume there's a whole bunch of other things that are hidden away. There is. So whether it's how we construct our identity with an insurance company or something like the principle of self-sovereign identity, where we get to make decisions about that identity, how it is governed, how it is decided, and 
how we use it or anything else in between and the stuff that's yet to be invented. So digital identity is not just about the stuff that we do when we create an avatar. It's not just about the way we conceive of ourselves and portray ourselves online. It's the actual data that makes that up as well. And I really wish that as an academic, I could give you one singular definition, but there is no singular definition of this. And that's a real struggle because when we think about digital identity, it is everything from the face that we present when we're getting through FOMO, as well as what a bank does when it asks us, can you just prove who you are, please? I guess that brings up a whole lot of questions. We know that identity is important for us to be seen and recognised for who we are and whatever gender we represent as and all these other things about us that are important to us, which brings up the fact that when companies collect massive profiles on us, there might be lots of incorrect things there, wrong assumptions or actual mistakes in the data. How much of a real problem do you see this being? Because we have a bit of anxiety around that. I have to admit, I'm going to disappoint you and everyone who's listening. I'm a futurist and I don't do predictions. However, (laughs) however, what I'm interested in is unintended consequences and not thinking stuff through. So we don't actually know, and it's part of my responsibility as an academically trained professional futurist to say I don't know. But because we don't know, we need to reconsider those implications. We don't know where that data will end up. We don't know what people will do with it. What we do know is that we're being asked to hand over a lot of information and that when we do that, we don't necessarily know where it's going to end up, how it's going to be used, who's buying it, who might misappropriate it. It also goes back to some of the more digital and manual processes around form filling in, being asked to provide a name, for example. I still think (laughs) it's wondrous that in 2021, we've got women being asked to provide a name and as part of that their evidence is their birth certificate and their marriage certificate for example. So that all builds into how we construct digital identity not just now but over generations to come. Does that kind of answer (laughs) as best I can that question? Oh look we're always going to dance around that one. The point about forums is really interesting because I'm curious about how much you think this is the designed complexity or how much of it is unintentional and how much of it is also is intentional to keep us on the back foot. Where are those lines? Any and all of the above, depending on who you are, what you want out of the data, who it serves, the purpose of the data that you're actually trapping and then using, and also where we see ourselves fitting in the world. Because part of this is how we construct our identity as well as the way it's constructed for us. So forms and stuff like that, That's about sharing information that might be considered mandatory or necessary. But over time, we might decide that that kind of information is not needing to be shared. The difference in what we share information as now compared to, say, five or ten years ago, we hand over email addresses so we can get a 10% discount on something. We didn't conceive of that, say, 10, 15 years ago. We were starting to do it. But the shifts in culture and the difference in the pace of change between, say, technology, law and culture is a big part of this as well. So on one hand, we've handed over tons of data people are making questionable decisions based off it and on another hand my ad recommendations haven't improved things still think that I'm a man and also I have plenty of friends sharing experiences about applying for a home loan Mm. and having really problematic experiences because they're freelancers compared to someone who's had the full-time nine-to-five experience and just fits the shape of what they think a home borrower should look like why is it so you know what are your thoughts about this I think part of this is down 
down to the form filling in, that construction of identity based on paradigms or design parameters that originated 20, 30, 50 years ago. We've also got the differences in the way we expect ourselves to operate and the way we deal with or integrate and interact with other organisations. So I happen to be someone that Google has thought of as a 35-year-old guy for the last 15 years. Oh. Which is great given I'm in my 50s. However, that kind of construct also means that it doesn't understand who I am. So we tread this line between the information that we give out because we might get something in return versus the things we have to provide as information to get a driver's licence, to validate who we are. To It's kind of like a credentialing process, but it's based on other parameters. And without rehashing the form thing and the design thing, sometimes we are unable to... and. <laughs> someone who's taught in a design school for a long time as as well as in in business and innovation sometimes design isn't able to keep up with the way other things work so form design might be based around conventions systems and processes that exist in an organization rather than being able to anticipate what we might need to know or do or that we might need to work with in five or ten years time So what is the ambition when you work with students and they're learning about these identities? It's nice to be optimistic about how these things will improve our lives. Where do you see some interesting thought experiments? So some of the things that I constantly remind my students about is to ask a better question, that we need to think through not just what we're doing now, but the unintended consequences down the track. We know that digital tools and technologies can bring harm as well as benefit. And that kind of politics of harm or the sense of harm needs to be contextually understood as well as culturally understood. We also need to start decolonizing that. I'm not saying it's the right word, but we need to really pull it apart and tease out what identity means as we move into the next 5, 10, 15 years of our lives. Because again, we are going back to making decisions that have an impact on people who are yet to be born. And the last discussion was incredibly rich because we are needing to think through what we do when we share a photograph of a child, when we talk about the things that our kids or relatives are doing, but we're not necessarily doing that. And that data is being captured somewhere along the line. And I don't want to get into a whole discussion about surveillance capitalism because we don't have enough time. I've read the book and it's too thick to cover, isn't it? Thanks, Shoshana Zuboff, for anyone who hasn't read that one. That point about politics of harm is a really interesting one because it's not only unintended consequences we're dealing with, it's intended consequences. People want to use this data to manipulate or to cause harm. What can we, as our by audience or as as designers or technical practitioners, what can we do? How do we fight that? How do we inoculate ourselves against it? So topical. (laughs) (laughs) I wish there was a short answer to that. It is definitely around asking better questions, considering what it is that we design into a system and also what we can design out of a system. What information we ask people to disclose when we're thinking about passwords, not just that it must have five combinations of this and a capital letter or whatever. And I actually get really jacked off when I find that out after I've tried to program the password. (laughs) So even designing that constraint into the beginning of the process and you're setting a password, making it clear that you have certain expectations around data security or protecting privacy and identity, even if it's at a surface level. But it's also questioning what is that construct of identity for the purposes of the task at hand? What information do we really need to share? What information can be taken apart? And I think this is the thing that we need to look at as borders change. And I'm not talking about borders within pandemic, just 
borders, national borders, different cultural borders, the constraints that exist within that. What are the possibilities for digital identity to morph beyond what we understand now versus 20 years from now? Because if we look back 20 years, we had a very different understanding of digital identity from what we have now. This fascinates me. There's something about futurists that you tend to have a really great grasp on history in a space. I feel like you're just the trendy historians, really. Oh, if only. (laughs) I'm just the bad news bear, basically. (laughs) But I wonder, we see so much complexity and we talk about complexity sometimes as the problem. And yet when we look at machine learning and different types of AI, it requires tons of data to learn from. And theoretically, we should be hitting some sort of tipping point where we get some solutions to quite complex problems because of the amount of data that we hand over. To what extent, say in medical purposes or what have you, do you think that there are some interesting things around the potential to mash identities and actually solve complex problems? Or is that all a bit of a fallacy and we can always de-identify data and it's always possible to do a really clean ethical solution? We don't think it's a fallacy, but we don't know what we're dealing with. And that's part of the challenge that we don't know what we don't know. I'm not acknowledging where that came from, but, (laughs) but we don't understand exactly what the potential is for harm. We don't consider that we even want to engage in a conversation about the potential for harm. And that's really tricky. When you're thinking about the consequences of digital identity for people around the world, the privilege that might come, I'm not vaccinated yet, but I will be soon because of my age, that privilege that comes with being vaccinated, the privilege that is completely bereft if you're not, those kinds of constraints are part of this. But also that complexity is something that we've not only shied away from or disavowed because it's just too hard, but we aren't necessarily equipped to build that into where we are now. And so the point about history is that we can learn a lot from history. doesn't matter where we are, and I'm not going to go into foresight theory tonight, <laughs> but it doesn't matter where we are, we'll always have that past to look back to as long as we learn from it. And there are things that we could learn from that passed us by. Even Y2K could have been something we we learned better from and maybe didn't. Yes. Bridget, with the data out there that is being used to construct identities that are or not correct, has the horse bolted in terms of trying to rein that in? Is there any way you can reformulate or re-manipulate what's already out there or is it just not worth trying? Yes and no, because it's basically going to be contextually deem limited by where you are. So your positionality in the world, where you are, how you operate, the tools that you use could mean that you don't have much of an imprint because Mm. you don't have access to the tools and technologies that someone in another part of the world might might have. And this is a whole other thing around digital identity that is not just privilege, but also how we identify ourselves, particularly in times of crisis, but more about what that means as we move into shifts in our geopolitics, for want of a better term. There are things we can do to shift that. It's not easy to, you probably know more about this than I do, you can't just wipe yourself from the digital world. People are really good at hiding their tracks. It's hard. Again, it depends on what we do with the technology and the decisions that are made, whether it's by AI or other inputs, because all of this is only going to be down to the quality of the inputs that we as humans give it. I love that you 
brought up that some people have very small footprints because there was a really interesting interview of Kara Swisher recently with someone who I believe worked for a government security agency and they were talking about how spies could be identified by their friends and families by their lack of online presence and how this was a tell and they needed to solve for that I love which that. is hilarious <laughs> great but it does make me think are you starting to see in your research and in, in any conversations you have are there societies around the world maturing a little bit in how they look at someone's historical online profile and go, well, yes, but of course they were a teenager at that point and so we're going to ignore that and not hold them to some sort of account there or not the same sort of account that we'd hold an adult to. Do we let people grow? Are we starting to see that sophistication of culture around people growing up online? I hope so. We need to be able to forgive the mistakes that we make online. Hello, second life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It says hi, bye. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also a dog, so we don't yeah. know. Yeah. yeah. Is it still flying? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but there are mistakes that we make online and we need to forgive ourselves for that, but we also need to have the structure and the policy in the systems and processes and the people that govern those because ultimately there is a degree of human governance in this in order to say, well, what do we need to change in the same way that we forgive ourselves if hopefully, and our friends forgive us as well, if we say something in a Facebook post that isn't exactly ideal, what degree of tolerance is there around that? And will that shift over time? I don't have an answer, but I would like to think that humanity can become more sophisticated. We have been speaking with futurist and senior lecturer in strategic design, foresight and innovation, Bridget Engler from Swinburne University, asking more questions than answers. And very empathetically, may I add, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us this evening. Thank you. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.